Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. We turn to the book of Proverbs, and on page 5 of your bulletin, you'll see a number of Proverbs printed for you. We're continuing various themes of our study in this book for just another week or two after this. And this morning, we're considering the theme of friendship, of relationships. And I want to read a few of the verses printed for us. Let us consider the Word of God. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all time, and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 18:24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 27, 9. Oil and perfume make the heart glad. And the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. In Proverbs 27:10, Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend, and do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about friendships, about relationships with others. I could have listed dozens and dozens of verses in Proverbs about this subject. It's, imp- it's important for all of us, but it's not surprising that it's so central in Proverbs when we think about the context of the book, which is a father giving wisdom and guidance to his son. Young people, the friends you choose, especially your close friends, will have a powerful influence in your life. And in some ways, you may be thinking, well, I'm forming my own identity, and I'm deciding who I'm going to be. And to some degree, that's true. But you're formed a lot by your family of origin, by your family when you're young. But then you're formed a lot by your closest friends as you move into adulthood. In other words, the friends you make will make a big difference in your life. And we see verses like Proverbs 13:20, "Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm." So give attention to who you choose as your best friends. Now, when we look at the issue of friendship in the book of Proverbs, we see pretty quickly that most of the time when Proverbs is speaking about friends, it's speaking about something more than just acquaintances or people you know casually. It's speaking of close friends. And that's the context of most of the verses that I read to you, if not all of them. And so our first point is this. True friendship is based on self-giving, consistent love. True friendship is based on self-giving, consistent love. Proverbs 17, 17, which I read, reflects that. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Now, there's debate about that conjunctive word, and, should it be and, or should it be but, but whichever the case it is, 
Certainly, they're saying that a brother is there for you in adversity, but maybe even more so, a friend is described as being as loving at all times. A friend's love is consistent. We would say a true friend is not just a fair-weather friend, to use that expression. Or Proverbs 18.24, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There, the friend is described as even closer than a member of the family. Think of that. In that ancient culture, family was in many ways much more important than in our modern times, even though we love our families and so forth. We live in a much more individualistic society that doesn't emphasize family as much. So for this proverb to speak of a friend who sticks closer than a brother, we are talking about a very close friend, a very loyal friend to be better than a brother in that sense. And so a friend, according to Proverbs, is not just someone you get together with to have fun with. A friend is someone who sticks with you even through the hard times. A friend is someone who has your best interests at heart. And so obviously, if you're someone's friend, you have their best interests at heart. Now, what are we seeing here? We're seeing that friendship is self-giving. Friendship is the opposite of just using someone as a means to an end that you might have. And even though we all have a limited number of very close friends, the principle really applies to all of our relationships, people at your job or at your school or your neighborhood, certainly brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church, to be genuinely concerned for others. Don't we all know what it feels like when someone acts friendly and interested in us, and then we find out they're trying to sell us something? Uh, It feels somehow a little bit dishonest. It feels like we're being used in some sense. How do you treat the people in your life? Is it all about you? Are you seeking to love others unselfishly? Whether it's the clerk at the store or the person in your class who's not in the in-group, so to speak, or is it a family member? We're going to see in our final point that true selfless love does not come easily to any of us. We need Christ to be reforming our hearts by His Spirit. Of course, last week, we saw how even people-pleasing and seeking the approval of others can often actually be a sign of self-centeredness. We're, we're relating to people more out of what we want, approval or acceptance, rather than out of a genuine concern for them. So this selfishness is a very insidious thing. So our first point is that friendship and really all our relationships should be self-giving and loving. Our friends, our family, our fellow workers, and even the way you drive on the road. How do you like that one? I heard a sermon application probably 40 years ago that has stuck with me. The verse was Romans 13.8, which says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. And the pastor was saying, you might pay off all your debts. You might pay off your car loan. You might pay off the mortgage of your house. You might pay off your school loan or any other loans you have. But there's one debt in every Christian's life that only keeps on growing, and that is your debt to love others. And especially as you know more and more people in your life. Just think of it. God is calling you 
to love others in all your relationships. And in the church, God has purposed to have all kinds of people in the church, people with very different personalities or people from uh, different backgrounds, different uh, views of life. And part of God's purpose in that is to demonstrate to the world God's amazing love in Christ. And He's calling us to represent Him in that way. How is God calling you to be a friend who loves at all times? But that brings us to point two. True friendship calls for relational wisdom. There are some Proverbs that are striking in how they get across this point. Listen to a few of these. Proverbs twenty-five twenty: Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. So, if you're with someone and you take off their coat on a cold day because maybe you want that coat, that's not uh, quite right. I'm not sure what the chemical reaction is with vinegar on soda, but it must not be good. Or Proverbs 27:14, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. That's a funny one, isn't it? Or Proverbs 26, 18 and 19, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking, really. What do all these Proverbs have in common? There's more like that as well. They all, they all indicate a lack of emotional and social awareness of others in someone's life. Someone has a friend who is grieving and he sings a song to him. And literally, the song there means a song of joy. Clearly, there's a disconnect. His so-called friend is not helping. He doesn't know how to weep with those who weep. He doesn't have empathy. He doesn't know how to enter somewhat into that person's experience and come alongside in a helpful way. Or what about the person who rises early and blesses his neighbor with a loud voice? Uh, again, we have to laugh at that one. The proverb says that will be counted as cursing. Again, the person is obvious. There's no relational wisdom. He doesn't understand his neighbor is asleep. Or how about this last one who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. It's like a madman who throws firebrands. It's like he's throwing flaming spears in the way he relates to others. But the funny thing is, he's excusing himself. I'm only joking. And he's saying to himself that my behavior is really fine. Maybe he or she thinks it's no big deal. That's just the way I am. People have to understand that. But really, it's terribly destructive. It's like throwing flaming spears, and people are going to steer clear. And those, unfortunately, who can't steer clear, who are close to this person, are going to be crushed. We may see those examples as pretty extreme, but aren't we all humbled by really the underlying point of all of this? Don't we all know what it's like to blurt out something hurtful to those whom we love, to a family member or friend, and then try to patch things up by saying, oh, I really didn't mean that. I was just joking, like the man in the Proverbs says. But really, we should be saying, it's true, I did mean that, at least in some sense, and sadly, out of the abundance of my heart, my mouth spoke, just like Jesus says in the Gospels. 
And I'm really sorry, not only for my wrong words, but also for my wrong heart, my self-centered, uncaring attitude. You see, as we grow in biblical relational wisdom, we learn to repent and seek God for His grace to us in Christ, and we become more of what Proverbs describes as a true friend. Think of some of those Proverbs which should be our goal. Proverbs 17:27. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. The contrast here is between unrestrained words and someone who restrains and keeps calm. And that proverb really speaks to resolving conflict wisely, resolving conflict in a biblical way. We could have a whole sermon on that, but notice this goal of a cool spirit. It relates to Proverbs 15.1. It puts it this way, a soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. What a proverb to live by. Pray that God would give you grace to guard your words so that you less and less speak harshly to people in your life. Or listen to Proverbs 18.13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Isn't that one that convicts us? I mean, it convicts me because I'm always quick to answer. I think I have the answer. If you're going to be wise... Proverbs is saying, don't be so quick to give your opinion on everything to everyone. Don't go around giving people advice when, you're, when you don't even thoroughly know the situation. Maybe you should err in the opposite direction. Make sure you ask a lot of wise questions before you start advising. Or how about Proverbs 27.9? Oil and perfume make the heart glad. And the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Isn't that a nice one? Uh, Earnest counsel or wise and true advice is an ingredient in friendship that is described as sweet. Remember that in ancient Israel, they didn't have sugar. They were so much better off than we were without sugar around all the time, although we love it. They did have honey, but... In other words, sweetness was something that was relatively rare for them. So this proverb, the the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. It was special. Don't we all know what it's like to talk to a friend who really listens to us, who listens to us well, who doesn't jump in with an immediate answer but takes time to listen well, maybe even asks clarifying questions? And when someone does that with us, when someone cares for us that way, don't we just have an expectation that we want to hear what they think then after they've listened well? It just causes us to want to know, well, what do you think of all this? And their counsel is sweet because they have really sought to understand. That's the mark of a true friend. This ties in with Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And we hear that word kiss, and we can't help but think about Judas betraying the Lord with the kiss, his supposed friend betraying him that way. This proverb may be kind of confusing, but the point is that a faithful friend uh, will tell you the truth, even though it might be a difficult truth for you to hear and to receive. But you see, a true friend knows us well enough to give counsel that is true and wise, but also to do it in a loving way 
so that we know that that person is also seeking our very best. That's a rare thing. That person has gained our trust. What a blessing to have someone like that able to speak into our lives. For many of us who are married, that person is our spouse, really our best friend. But that's also the blessing of other close friends. And if you're not married, you hopefully have a close friend or two that functions in that way. Our men's ministry often cites Proverbs 27:17, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. That's the opposite of Proverbs 29:5. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Isn't that an interesting one? Flattery is like the kiss of an enemy. It does us no good. It's like a net that trips us up in pride and self-absorption. Flattery is a way of using someone to get something. Some of you are in sales. I don't mean to pick on you if you're in sales. And you know that being good at sales uh, and uh, knowing all the techniques for connecting with people and making them feel liked or built up so that they'll, you know, buy the thing you're selling, that, that all has a dangerous negative side effect. It can at least. You know that it's possible to use those kind of people skills in a way that is really just not caring for someone. It's like manipulating someone, using the right techniques to make a sale or something like that. Proverbs says that if you act that way with neighbors, if you flatter your neighbor, you're really just spreading a net for their feet. Of course, I'm picking on people in sales, but that applies to pastors as well, and we need to be aware of that as well. Most Americans have heard the name Benedict Arnold, the infamous traitor in the Revolutionary War. But many do not know the first part of the story of his life, which is what a great general and a great leader of men he was in the first part of the war before his greed took control. Arnold, Arnold, if you read your history, was a hero of a number of decisive battles in the Revolutionary War. Here was a man who knew how to inspire and rally men. He knew how to lead into battle, but at the the same time, he was just consumed with pride and envy and greed. And you could say that he knew all the relational techniques to some extent, but his heart was all wrong. Are you seeking to be a friend who is relationally wise? And do you seek out a close friend or two who can speak into your life? who can give you that earnest counsel that is sweet. But this brings us to our final point. Become a true friend by knowing the ultimate true friend. Become a true friend by knowing the ultimate true friend. As we see how Proverbs describes true friendship, I imagine that for most of us, we have a twofold response. One, we are filled with a sense of longing This kind of friendship is a beautiful thing. And in our busy day and age, it can often go by the wayside, but we long for it. We would like a friend like that or more friends like that. We would like to be a friend like that. And when we see biblical examples of this kind of friendship, we see it as very good. We think of of David and Jonathan and their friendship, or Ruth and Naomi and their friendship and relationship. I hope you want to be a friend like this and to have a friend like this. But the second reaction is when we see this, we are also really humbled 
and convicted to some extent by how often we fall short of being a true friend. But both of these responses should lead us to the gospel because the gospel tells us that that Jesus Christ came as our true friend, as the ultimate friend to give himself for us, to save us from our sins, to bring us to God. But also part of that salvation he's brought into our lives is that as we walk with Christ, he is at work making us into people more like him, more able to be a true friend because of God's love for us. And to know that we are held by Christ sets us free from bondage to our our idolatries to love others as Christ has loved us. And in that classic passage in John 15, verses 13 to 15, Jesus tells his disciples the night before he's crucified, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We know that's what Christ did. And he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And he's just described not long before this that to do what he commands is first and foremost to believe in him. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Today is the first Sunday in Advent, and we are all especially reminded of the incredible news of the Lord of glory, the King of kings, uh, coming in the flesh to be born of the Virgin Mary. And now we hear Jesus in John 15 telling his disciples, I call you friends. I'm the friend who lays down my life for his friends. And so when Jesus is crucified, he was fulfilling the Proverbs that says a friend sticks closer than a brother. He was sticking so close to us that he was bearing our burdens, the burden of our sin. Romans 5.8 puts it in the startling way, but, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. We didn't deserve it at all. And he, as our true friend, the friend, he loved us at all times. He loved us through enduring the cross. And so Jesus brings this gospel of grace that we believe in for eternal life, and he comes by his Spirit to indwell us, Emmanuel, God with us. And let me ask you this then, What does the gospel say about becoming a true friend? Well, let me ask it this way. How do I get rid of my self-centeredness? Well, the problem of sin is that self-centeredness goes so very deep in all of our hearts apart from Christ. It's like gravity. How do I overcome gravity? You know, I can jump up a little bit and leave the ground for a second or so, but I'm not really escaping it. What I need is something from outside of myself, like a rocket ship, to take me up beyond gravity's reach. And that's how really the gospel is with our sinful self-orientation. Yes, left to ourselves, we can guide that into socially acceptable forms. We can be selfish in a way that's acceptable to most people around us, but we're really not escaping it. We saw last week that even people-pleasing can easily be idolatry. It's all about us. It's the only way out. Uh, It's the only way we know how to relate to others. But if we come to Christ, 
and He's at work in our lives, and we are able to focus our attention on Him, He is outside of us, He is worthy of our attention, He is worthy of our worship and our praise rather, rather than worshiping other people or trying to get approval from them or trying to control them or demean them or trying to uh, elevate them in some way to a God, small g, in our lives, to elevate even romantic love, which our society does, in, as something as the ultimate thing, or to elevate family or children or grandchildren in some way that comes before God, or even to out of a superiority or out of a cynicism about life to cut ourselves off from everyone in life and to just say, I'm just going to go it alone. Any kind of these things, using people, objectifying them, all of these ways, and we could go on and on listing the ways that we can make people into idols of some form. But as you come to know the love of Jesus Christ, as you come to know this love that will never let you go, you're able to receive the gifts of this life, like relationships, like friendships, like family, and to hold them in a way that they're submitted to Jesus Christ. And first and foremost, you're looking at Him and to Him and living before Him. And so these things are ordered in a God-glorifying way in your life. I pray that you would be filled with hope by this gospel. Hope for yourself, hope for the state of your soul, hope for your relationships, and also hope for God's work in this sin-cursed world when we see the outworkings of sin in wars and rumors of wars and all kinds of terrible things. There is hope. There's a lot of sadness and strife in this world, and that will be the case until Jesus returns. But God is at work bringing the hope of the gospel to the world. And he will do that until Jesus returns. And because Jesus died and rose again, the battle is already won, and the church is God's display in the world of this new unity that he is building. The news of Christmas is that Jesus came to save. Jesus came to die. Jesus came to bear all the hatred and injustice and sin to bring salvation, to triumph over sin and death and hell. And Jesus is still the friend of sinners. Have you come to Jesus as your ultimate friend? Have you given him your life? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for such a Savior. We thank you for the great cost we can't conceive of it that the Lord of glory would come for us. But Lord, we thank you, and we respond to you with adoration. Thank you for Jesus Christ, the true friend. We pray in his name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m., to learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.